Welcome to Hollywood 2.0, this is Peter Katz. On today's show, we're going to be talking to Jeff Ulrich, co-founder of Earwolf, a popular podcasting network focused on creating comedy shows with some of the funniest people alive, including Brian Posehn, Matt Besser, and many others. Jeff's co-founder is Comedy Maven, Scott Ackerman, who's behind the web series Between Two Ferns with Zach Galifianakis. Airwolf's podcast, Comedy Bang Bang, was adapted into a TV show for IFC. We're going to be talking about the business and art of podcasting. So I'm on about 30 podcasts. Um, I think 20 are active, um, predominantly comedy. And we've been around for between two and a half and three years, not quite three years. And uh, yeah, we're just, we're located in LA where most comedy podcasts come from, much to the chagrin of people elsewhere. And uh, yeah, that's about it. Now, you're an entrepreneur and uh, typically it's, there's an initial process where it's kind of an idea and you tell people, some people get behind it, other people knock it. What was the biggest challenges uh, taking it from that idea to uh, where you're at now? Um, I mean, it's hard to answer that because the, the answer is different for like every six month interval that we've been around, you know, like it's not linear. Um, I mean, in the beginning, you just, you got to convince yourself and, and your wife really, um, that it's okay to not make any money doing anything else and to spend the money, you know, that it takes to get it started, um, and take the risk. And then obviously, you know, I had to make sure that Scott was on board with it when you have a partner. Um, but it really was that it was just, you know, me and my wife and Scott and Kulop kind of saying, all right, let's start this. Let's try. And then, um, from there, it's just, you know, adding your first show and trying to get some people to help you build a website. Um, you know, at some point you start to add a little bit of full-time staff, although that came later. Um, and you know, so that's what I mean. I'm not trying to sound like I'm evading the question. It's just what, what had to happen in the beginning is really different than what's had to happen in the last few months. Yeah. It's not like you do a couple of magic, uh, moves and then suddenly it's like this, Oh yeah, everything's laid back. We don't have to think about it. it there's a constant like maintenance and adapting and iterating to each individual challenge. But I guess going into it, would you would you be taking the traditional? I'm creating a business plan. I'm getting into. I'm talking to investors, or was it just like, all right, let's just learn by doing completely, and not kind of lay a blueprint out from the get go. Yeah, it was the latter. I mean, you know, it hadn't been done. I mean, if you went on Google back when I was like starting Earwolf, and you just search for anything related to podcasts, I think there was maybe like one article that had been written about Adam Carolla's new network um, that had been that something, you know, I couldn't, that was all I could find. Um, and it, really no one knew what they were doing or what they were supposed to be doing. Um, so there was no like going for investment. I mean, what did we need an investment for? We, we started with the money that we had put in and, we never, I think, went below like $16,000 in the bank. Um, it really was just like, how do we make this happen? And 
it wasn't a function of having money. Uh, it was just working hard and, and knowing people and talking to people and getting people excited about what we were doing. Um, but there was no one to go f to for help, I guess. And, and that would in include kind of like investors. They, they wouldn't have known what to tell us to do. Oh, it's, it's an interesting challenge. It's, it's kind of like you have a great idea and you're like, how do I navigate this? But there isn't like a, a framework. There isn't kind of like a paint by numbers where you could go, this is raising money for a film. I, I know exactly how to create the limited liability corporation. I sell shares. I do whatever it is. You're like, well, I don't need that much. I don't really need money, but I just need a good team and I have good taste to program and team up with uh, the right talent. Yeah, I mean, I remember in the very beginning, Scott said, so you think we can sell ads? And I said, you know, yeah, I, I do. I, I don't know when. And we might go out of business before I'm right, which would, which would mean I'd be wrong. But, um, and he's like, oh, well, if all we got to do is sell ads to stay in business, then, like, you know, we'll have good shows. I'm sure, you know, we'll figure it out. And he's like, well, unless, unless you're just wrong. If no one ever wants to buy an ad on a podcast, then I guess we're just going to go out of business. And that was that was literally that was the analysis. You know, like what I just kind of that back and forth was the complete analysis of whether or not we could ever stay in business. And we just kind of decided that we had faith that just even Scott's show, forget adding any of the other shows, that we thought it was good enough and it had enough people who who loved it that if advertising as a model was going to work it would work on his show and if it if it didn't work on his show it probably wouldn't work so it's kind of like the canary in the cave you could say that yeah you could say that i mean it's still it took a long time before we could get any advertising but yeah it definitely was a kind of a canary situation and so you have this partner what's the dynamic how do you work together what's the kind of the 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 certain like the characteristics that you know, like any working day, how you brainstorm and then you execute your ideas. Uh, well, that's another kind of like it depends on when you ask me answer because you know like right now Scott started on Monday shooting season two of his TV show, and he's you know he's going to be super busy for a long time. Um, so he's involved in the sense of like he's really good at getting back to me on emails and if I have to have a call, we'll have a call. But our typical kind of way we've done things is we would have a weekly meeting for about an hour and a half, two hours. And I would just kind of catch him up on where things were at and uh, we'd make decisions together um, and then deal with everything else as it came up. But like I said, now, you know, he's going to be really busy. So I'm going to be asking expecting less of him um, in the next kind of few months than I typically would. I see. And um, when it comes to a lot of the programming decisions and just kind of uh, developing the content, what is that? How does that start? Like, is it initial idea or was someone talking to you or you kind of see a dynamic maybe at UCB or another uh, place and you could see kind of a relationship between different comedians and then you kind of come up with idea from that? Well, it's most of the time we didn't really come up with ideas so much as people would come up with ideas and then pitch them to us and then we would help them develop those shows. So, you know, like I get probably, I don't know, four to six emails a day from our website 
people saying like, I have a great idea for a show or I already have a show and I want to join Earwolf or whatever. Um, but, you know, we never do anything like that. Basically, it's people we know and we don't really cast shows because like, look, I'm not going to pretend like I don't have ideas for podcasts that I think would be fun that I would like to do. I do all the time. The problem is if you cast something, then it's not going to be the performer's passion. You know, you're selling them on your idea rather than the other way around. And at the end of the day, podcasting has to be about passion because the pe- the kind of caliber people that we're fortunate enough to work with, you know, people like Scott, who's got his own TV show based on his podcast and Paul Shear and, and Jason Manzukis and June Diane. I mean, they're all on two to three TV shows at any time. Plus they do movies. Um, Paul's the creator of one of his own shows. You got Jeff Garland, who's a busy guy. So if we want to work with people like that, it's got to be something that they're so passionate about that they can't not talk about it. And you're rarely, if ever, going to find that scenario where you try casting uh, for an idea that a producer has. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, just- it's a medium is an unfiltered uh, voice. And that's what draws them to podcasting uh, in the first place. Absolutely. So we just have found that even though sometimes, like I said, we have ideas for things, um, for the most part, all the ideas are coming from, from the artists themselves. And then we'll, we'll help form that into something that we think makes it an Earwolf show. And with the Earwolf show, it's like high quality comedy. But is there anything that's more, any other characteristics that you would add to that that would fit the overall programming? Yeah. I mean, we believe in performing comedy, not discussing it. And don't get me wrong. Like, I'm not going to sit here and say that we don't have a single show where people are talking about things because we do. But by and large, you'll have a really hard time finding a show that isn't structured and formatted very similar to what you would expect out of something like a television show or even a movie where there's kind of elements that are, are very clear. There's segments, there's games. Um, something comes in one way, it goes out another way. And you kind of have these devices that you use to move things forward. And it makes it so that all of our shows are unique. I mean, you can listen to, Andy Daly be interviewed by a million different podcasters, but every time he's performing one of his characters on an Earwolf show, it's a different entertainment experience. And you'll see that, you know, our, our downloads, we have 5 million downloads in December for all of Earwolf and 3 million of them were from shows that were not released in December. So we have a very evergreen catalog because we don't, we, we, we don't do anything that's disposable or that other people can equally do. I, I see. It's it's kind of like when a actor has a, a movie that's premiering very soon and they're on Conan O'Brien or another show. A lot of times people watch that because they're like, okay, what's this guy going to say about the film or working with their co-star? But like a couple of years from now, it doesn't have it. So it's so based on uh, the, t- the timing of the interview. But when you do something that's like a great stand-up or great skit – People could watch something that's like twenty years old. It doesn't. It doesn't ages the same way. Exactly, and it's something that people can watch over and over again, or in our case, listen to over and over again. 
because you have like Mark Maron, who's known to di- dissect the process, you know, in a sense of his shows, which I have a lot of respect for. Yours is showing the kind of showing the process of, you know, what it is to be like, actually, you're showing the art versus the kind of like to be behind the scenes of what it is to create the art or to live through the art. Yeah. And Mark has his own, you know, the thing that's interesting about Mark is that really you could say that Mark essentially has a show that we would consider as part of like the earwolf thought process, meaning, you know, he, he does approach his show in a way that you want to go listen to episode 20, you know, two years later, even though you've already heard it. Um, so in a sense, Mark's show kind of, uh, in a way it, what's the word I'm looking for? You might have to edit this. I think it's timeless. I think his interviews are timeless because it's not just about, hey, we got an inside scoop. This band's going to drop a new album. That's great. They might have a little bit of that. But it's also talking about like very personal issues. And he delves a lot deeper than uh, many interviewers. Yeah. And, and, and I think, like I said, you know what you're going to get from him, but it's, it's going to be different every time. And that's kind of, I think, what separates our shows is when you listen to Who Charted, you know that they're going to talk about, you know, the top five music, movies, um, and other things going on in pop culture. And you also know that it's really not about that at all. And they're going to use those charts as the device to get behind things from their guests that no one else is asking their guests about. And that's really what makes an Earwolf show different. Uh, no, I, I see what you're saying. There's a, a, a music journalist I have a lot of respect for who is from Canada. I'm trying to remember the, the name, but it just literally just goes, it's almost like a stalker, the amount of information that this uh, guy provides. And it's like this really manic, intense interviews. But he, he brings something out of the guest that nobody else does because it, it's making the person interesting in a unique way versus just relying on them to do it and drive the, the dialogue back and forth, you know? It's like right. trying to trying to create something unique out of the interaction. So I like that. And now when you look at a lot, a lot of its comedians that are attracted to these podcasts, how do you think that this as a medium is changing the relationship between them and their fans? Because there, it seems like there might be different expectations. It's kind of like you could talk about your, your life as a comedian or pop culture, but now the podcasting, it's almost like there's like a podcast reference for your hardcore fans and then maybe something that's more broad for like just a general like you know individual just attracted material how do you see this uh changes happening well i mean to be honest i doubt i'll have anything interesting to say that you haven't heard from other people but it's it's the most intimate the most engaging form of entertainment that any of us know about and because of that, the connection you have with your fans is just way stronger than anything you could imagine. And I mean, I, I always say when people ask, like, how do you prove that? Well, the proof is that, you know, Aziz Ansari is one of the biggest stand-ups going right now. He's a star of a television show on, on NBC. And when he goes to a show, he's not walking away with two suitcases filled with homemade quilts and, you know, smoked salmon and homemade bread. I mean, Mark Marin, when he goes on the road, he's got to bring empty suitcases with him when he leaves so he can bring back all of the shit people are bringing to him at the shows. And that's, that's the podcast. You know, you're developing relationships with people in a way that you can't anywhere else. And I think what happens is, comedians who typically were looking at a podcast as one way of kind of getting out there, they end up 
making that the focal point of their fan interaction. So they listen more to the people. You know, you're more likely to, to have a comedian respond to you or listen to what you have to say if you send their podcast an email than if you tweet at them. And I think it's just, you know, like I said, the, the connection is driving everything. And then that connection means that the, the comedians are serving the podcast listener more than they're going to be serving other, other audiences, I think. Was, um, I heard on the, the Joe Rogan uh, podcast that he tends to, st- to avoid a lot of these radio shows that he used to frequent when he was going on tour because he felt that you know he has a much stronger relationship and he doesn't have to deal with that. It's like he has the control of that relationship versus having to like you know running around and to radio, which is not on demand. And you know there's a certain amount of people going to see it. This is like you can literally manage your own community. I think a lot stronger, like you said, than Twitter, which is you get lost in a huge wall of uh, tweets. You know you might see something, but on a podcast, it's a more of a captive audience. Yeah, absolutely, and. I think the the love that you feel from the audience um, makes it easier to invest your time in that audience. That makes sense. And um, when we look at this audience, is there a magic number that you look at as a success for a podcast for it to hit? Like there's a certain minimum for you to go, all right, well, this is uh, definitely picking up traction. You know, I mean, yeah, you can tell the trend of whether or not something is getting more popular or, or is flat or is getting less popular. But, um, you know, we've, we've never really made any decisions on what to produce or to continue producing um, based on that. It's really just whether or not we like it. Um, but, yeah, you can certainly tell trends. And it, it's the bigger the better in terms of that, meaning, like, you know, the bigger the show, the more likely it is to grow. Um, which is no going to shock anyone. Um, the higher you are in iTunes, the more likely a brand new person is going to click on you. And out of those people, some of them will like it and some of them won't. Um, whereas if you're kind of buried in the rankings, then less people are going to be sampling what you're doing. So it's kind of like if you can like reach that level and hit it up, then it just kind of like there's a it just kind of builds upon that. Like if you could hit that certain quota of the get of being ranked on the top list on iTunes or something like that, you could just keep building from that if you could break through all the other uh, noise on the on the iTunes. Only prophecy, and obviously the show has to be good to make yeah. it to the top. But I'm just saying that once you get, <coughs> excuse me, once you get into that place where, you know the. The advertisers are looking at who's at the top of the charts, and then the journalists are looking at who's on top of the charts. And now it's more likely that your show is going to be listed in like the top ten of the year, kind of a thing. Um, and it's just all of that kind of mindshare stuff. You you kind of have that in your favor um, if you're a top show. And for newer shows, it's just harder to kind of crack into that. I see, and. How have you been shocked uh, during this process, you know, like developing Arab? Has, what has been the times where you, suddenly everything goes against a certain expectation that you set uh, going into it? Huh. Well, to be very honest, everything has pretty much worked the way we thought it would, which is, is not uh, bragging. It, to be honest, if anything, that makes me wonder what we did wrong because it's not supposed to go that way. 
Um, not to say that we had like any magic wand or or that we knew the, we could predict the future or anything like that. I just mean that we kind of said, hey, let's keep this simple. You know, let's let's create content that we think is the best in the world. Let's do it with the people that we like the most. Let's work on building an infrastructure that scales so that we can support as many artists as we think are funny enough to work with. And while we're doing all that, let's be as cheap as we have to be to start until we can start proving that we can bring money in and sustaining these things uh, on, a, on a weekly basis. And that was it. We just That was kind of what we decided to do. We went out. We were lucky enough to do it. Um, lots of bumps along the way. And um, how many people are part of the Airwolf family, just like employees and people that you work with? Well, you're going to get me in trouble. I don't have a current, like, count right this very second. But, I mean, I think we're, we're at 50 is the number of hosts mm-hmm. and full-time staff, part-time staff, and um, interns, I think, is is it it's it's over 50 so the there's now like a pretty large amount of people who are pretty involved in what we do so so it's it's great to see the the build you know build from uh this uh initial concept of you and your friend to like like a very like serious team and with this team are you dealing directly with the brands yourself or do you have a certain part of uh your company that, that interacts with them and let me correct you real quick. Actually, Scott and I weren't friends. We didn't know each other when we started here. Oh, you were. You're, oh, that's interesting. How did you first uh, come to contact with them and decide that you know you would team up? Friend. We had a mutual friend, and I learned about Scott's show from him. He was on it, and I uh, basically connected through Scott with him, uh, and it. We met for two two times for two hours each uh, before we started Earwolf together, but that was all we had ever known of each other. Oh, I see. I had like the misconception that you're like just high-fiving it. That's like, oh, we're we're a team, you know, initially, let's do this. But it was actually just kind of like, kind of more of a, a just met someone and then uh, spent a few hours working out the details. Yeah. Yeah, no, it definitely isn't a standard kind of process, but that, that is how it worked with us. And uh, and then so a couple hours here or there has been developed into actual obviously uh, more of a, a much longer term uh, working relationship and uh, it's interesting. Well, I know that I recommend someone else do that. <laughs> it's very risky, but the cool part about it is that there is like you're starting you're starting from scratch and you're starting from scratch in your relationship. You know, a lot of times people who've known each other for a long time. Even though the situation is new, they're bringing a lot of baggage with them, and that that wasn't the case for Scott and I. You know, we we didn't know anything about each other other than what each of us represented as having skills in, and so really at the end of the day, it was great because you know Scott was good at what he was good at, and I was good at what I was good at, and those things complemented each other. And we needed each other to be able to be good at what we did. But there was no overlap. There was no ego stuff, you know, because we, we weren't, it was just very obvious. Like, okay, I'm going to do the kind of 
the business side and you're going to worry about creative and we're going to trust each other. And we didn't have to worry about anything else. Um, it just kind of worked. It's like a clean slate. You know, that's going to inspire a, a business matchmaking where you set up someone of a blind date of a <laughs> co-founder. Here you go. He's good at marketing. This guy's a programmer. You've never met him your entire life. That's a whole, that could work. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, it just matters whether or not people can do what they say they can do. Exactly. And, uh, no, that's, yeah, I didn't, that's, that's definitely new. But on another note, um, I was just wondering with, uh, just how you worked with brands, uh, your relationship and, uh, uh, with them and how is that developing? And also is it, uh, are you dealing with them uh, on your own? Or are you working with a team to, uh, to work out those deals? Um, I have had a little bit of help for sure. Um, <clears throat> I do pretty much handle all the advertising stuff, but Excuse me, I'm sorry. It's definitely become something that's more than I can do. I've had now three different people um, for short kind of periods of time help me out with that. And I have somebody now, Lauren, that I work with who is very involved. Um, but, you know, I kind of defined how that would work. That, like, it, it just wasn't going to work for me to just hire someone and say, handle ad sales. Because the way we started doing things was a little bit different. I mean, we won't let someone advertise with us unless they pitch us on why it's cool enough. And what happens is you get lots of people who aren't interested in doing that. So I get a lot of people who tell me, you know, to go scratch, that they're not in the business of working to justify that their money's as green as the next guy's, which is fine. Because then they're gone, and we know that they weren't really the right fit for us anyways. So then you're left behind with the people who are like, oh, yeah, of course. Like, what do you want to know? I'd love to tell you more about my product or my company or my service. And so they'll pitch us, and I'll say, okay, yeah, I think this fits our audience. I think it's cool, or, or I don't. If the answer is no, then the answer is no. And if I think it's great, then the next process is I investigate. So, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, Yelp, Better Biz Bureau, common, uh, excuse me, uh, Consumer Reports. And I figure out, like, you know, is it just a good pitch or are they making people happy? And the last thing you want is for your audience to be the one to tell you that a company's, you know, doing evil in the world. So we make sure that they're doing no evil, that they're cool, that they're, they're looking to work with us instead of just send us a check. And then it goes to the hosts, and every host has 100% veto right. So if they don't think it's cool or they don't think it fits with their audience or it's not something they would use, they say no. And if they say yes, then by the time you, you know, a listener hears an ad, it's pretty much guaranteed it's going to work because we know that we did all the work that needed to be done ahead of time, that you're only hearing something that everyone really believes in. That's uh, different than when you, when you, a lot of people think of advertising, which just kind of, uh, it's kind of like a buffer getting you in between of what you actually want and you have no, nothing of value to gain from it, which now I think that uh, with what you're doing and see a lot of uh, the being developed is it's so targeted, whoever's listening to it should probably be listening to it, you know, versus television where it just like hits everybody. Yeah, well, it's definitely, you know, we're dealing with, with a niche off and we try to, 
behave that way. But I will say this, you know, here's, here's the standard that I've kind of figured out that works for people. If you're a fan of Scarborough Country and you're not interested in buying a pair fitting pants from bonobos.com for $90 because that's out of your price range, then that's okay. Like as, as that listener, you're not going to be upset that you just heard that ad because you're going to recognize that enough of the people in the tribe who listen to that show with you are going to be interested. So our listeners are very open and very kind of um, understanding of things that, that they are not interested in. But what they will not accept is if they do not perceive that the community at large has enough members of it who would be interested. And so that's kind of the sweet spot of, like I said, you, don't, you never know how many people are going to want to buy clothes from Bonobos. But the people who do love it. And they love us for telling them about it. And so that's where the sweet spot is. Um, making sure that you're talking about something that is applicable to enough people, uh, but, but doesn't alienate anyone. I see. It's a case by case. I read that you're um, working on developing an ad network for podcasts. Yes, that is happening as we speak. And it was before I got on the phone with you, and it will be when I get off the phone. And um, how do you keep that uh, level of uh, quality as you scale that aspect of your business? Well, I think the first thing is I don't know that I can, which means I don't know that I'll be able to scale. Um, you know, we were starting with, um, I think, 30 shows. So all the Earwolf shows and then a bunch of non-Earwolf shows. So we're, we'll have a couple shows from from Nerdist. We'll have a couple shows from All Things Comedy. We've got a couple shows from the Quick and Dirty Tips Network um, and a couple other independent shows. And so I'm not letting anyone on that I can't have a personal conversation with. Like if I don't know you and I don't like you, well, I don't not like it's it's not a person or it's not a popularity contest. But you know what I like if I like Paul Gilmartin, I know he does a great, great show that has amazing fans, that's number one in his category, and he's just never found a way to make any money at it, you know? So I want to bring Paul in and say, join the mid roll, we're gonna help you find the right sponsors. We're gonna let you keep most of the money that comes in from that because a lot of the commissions out there are pretty high. Um, and do it that way. Now, if, it, if, if I can't continue to do kind of like things the right way, then maybe the mid-roll never has more than 100 shows. And it's just people that I know that I can kind of, like I said, pick up the phone and say, here's how it works. Do you, do you want to do it or not? And if they say no, then they say no. Um, but I'm not really sure. You know, we haven't launched yet, so it's hard to say. But there are a lot of, of tools that you can build to remove or make easier the administrative part of this stuff, which a lot of the issue is just that. I mean, part of what I'm pushing for the mid-roll is you're not looking for a thousand sponsors, you're looking for a couple soulmates. And that's really the thing. I mean, in a way, I'm approaching this new project as, as if it's a dating service. Like you had joked earlier about connecting you know, founders who don't know each other. 
But in a way, there's something to be said for treating a podcast sponsorship as as a long-term relationship. And you, like I said, you don't need a thousand of them. You just need a couple that really feel good, that you can get behind, and that your audience is going to listen to. Because it's not a uh, one-night stand. It's a uh, long-term relationship that builds trust and you know, in a community of uh, listeners versus, okay, I heard this podcast once, I, you know, it's bet, it's betting big for the long run because over time there'll be more of a ROI for the advertisers and also the audience will get the, get a sense of what the brand's about. And, you know, that relationship, I think, is good on both sides. Absolutely. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. And then I guess the last uh, question is uh, beyond, obviously, the, the ad network, um, what other ways are you expanding your business? Because I've noticed that you're almost becoming kind of like an incubator uh, for other uh, platforms that these podcasts could kind of be developed for. I don't know if I'd say incubator. I mean, we're we're basically we're starting a television production and development entity um, that already exists. We're we're not making any announcements on any projects yet. That'll come probably not until like mid-April. Um, but it's pretty simple. You know, the idea is that Scott is a very accomplished producer and there's a lot that he wants to do. Um, we brought in, uh, someone who's going to be head of production who also is great and is going to work well with Scott. And it's kind of about expanding the, the sandbox that we get to play in. I mean, we could be proven wrong for sure, but our theory is that what makes us attractive to as far as to work with from an artist's perspective is that we give complete creative control that we're very fair with people financially that, you know, we try and make sure that they own like with a podcast, they own all the IP themselves. They, they own it. And with something like a web project or a TV project, we want to try and make sure that the artist can maintain as high a level of ownership of their work as possible. So we figured the way we treat artists is ultimately what's most attractive to them. And that doesn't have to be limited to audio podcasting. Now it doesn't mean that we're kind of looking at podcasting as a second class citizen because we're, we're not, that's kind of our core business. Um, but there's a lot of opportunity out there for us to go out and make TV shows that have nothing to do with podcasts. Um, you know, the first two shows that we have sold scripts on uh, are not based on any podcast so it's exciting and uh there's a lot of risk but we'll we'll see how it goes let's see you have talented people that are hardworking and passionate and they get to play in the sad box of podcasts and that's what that's just a major component of how they express themselves and if there happens to be a concept that could come from podcast great or just come from originate outside of that uh realm it works it's just kind of like the you're working with the right people and the concepts work, they work, but it's not like you're trying to shoehorn it. Yeah, definitely not. We're, we're not looking to just port podcasts to television. That is definitely not what we want to do. If it makes sense, if there's a show that works, great. But <clears throat> this is more about expanding relationships with people that we like working with. Sound, sounds good. Well, thanks for your time. I, I really appreciate it. And, uh, and where can people uh, follow you online? Um, 
You know, I do a poor job of promoting myself, so it's pretty much just Earwolf.com and, and at Earwolf on Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook. Um, I'm I'm on Twitter at uh, Jeff, J-E-F-F, Ulrich, U-L-L-R-I-C-H. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hollywood 2.0. You can follow me at PeterKatz.net. It's K-T-Z.